We turn a corner today in our Blessings Through the Basics sermon series. Now, over the past few weeks, Pastor BJ has been explaining to us how a person becomes a Christian. So we covered regeneration, how the Lord takes a spiritually dead sinner and breathes life into them and causes them to be born again. Next, we covered conversion. How when God causes a person to be born again, they actually turn from sin and to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And then last week we covered justification. That when a person does put their faith in Jesus, they are declared righteous in God's sight. And all their sins are forgiven and wiped away. All of that, all that is what we mean when we say that someone has become a Christian. It means that they have experienced all these amazing, wonderful things. Tonight, Lord willing, at our annual meeting, we're going to baptize someone who has just recently become a Christian. And we're going to get to hear the story of how God saved this young woman by his grace and how she belongs to him now. And we're going to rejoice like the Dickens. But then you may ask, well, what happens next? Once a person has become a Christian, does life continue on pretty much as it did before, just with some new beliefs and a few new habits, like they go to church now and they try not to swear so much? I think that's what a lot of people think. I wonder if some of you here today might be thinking something like, I know I need to make some changes in my life, and I I want to become a better and a happier person. And that's what being a Christian is all about, right? Well, no. No. That's actually not what being a Christian is all about. Frankly, if you want to make some changes in your life and become a nicer, happier person... Therapy might well just do the trick. You don't necessarily need Jesus for that. Would you like to know what being a Christian is all about? It's about holiness. It's about holiness. And you do need Jesus for that. Listen to me. A Christian is someone who has entered into a totally brand new life. Their new identity is that they're a follower of Jesus. And they have, barked, have embarked on a fabulous and dangerous and difficult journey. A journey that started when they first believed in Jesus. A journey that's going to last them their whole life long. A journey that's going to culminate when they finally see Jesus face to face. And the whole point of all that journey is holiness. They are going through that journey, being transformed, being transformed, being transformed until they reflect the character of their Holy Savior. So what does it actually mean to be a Christian? It means that you have been made holy, you are being made holy, and you will be made holy. This 
is sanctification. And it's the idea I want to show you from God's word today. Now, I really think that you'd be helped this morning if you were to follow along with the gray sermon outline, which is in your bulletin. You see how it's two-sided? The left side, that lists the main ideas that I'm going to cover. And then the, the right side has a whole bunch of scripture passages that support those ideas that are on the left side. Now, I realize that's, that's far too many scripture passages to cover today. But if you want to know where the Bible teaches, say, number 2D2, that sanctification is a long, like, lifelong work, well, then you can look over to the right-hand side, and you see you can go look up those verses from 1 Corinthians 9 and Philippians 3 and 1 John 1. So hopefully that makes sense. What that also means, folks, is that there is a far, far more that can be said about this amazing topic than I can cover in this message. I won't even be able to answer all the questions you'll want me to answer. But I pray that what we do cover will be helpful to you. So first I want to show you that Christians have been made holy. What happens when you come to Christ? You are made holy. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And if you're using a blue Bible from the seats, you're going to want page 942. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing, and he's answering a very good question. If I'm a Christian, and I'm justified, and and my sins are taken care of and fully paid for, and, and if all that happens by faith in Jesus and not by doing good works, well, then why can't I just go out and live however I want? How come I can't just go out and commit all kinds of sin because After all, God's grace is going to just forgive me. And Paul's going to give an answer. Yeah, that actually can't happen. Not even that it shouldn't happen. It actually can't happen. So listen, please, as I start reading in Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let 
not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Friends, when you come to Christ, the reigning power of sin is dethroned in your life. Why? Because you are united to Jesus in his death. And when he died, he broke the power of sin. See, before you came to Christ, you were a slave of sin. And if you still have not come to Christ, I have bad news for you. You are a slave of sin. As non-Christians, we were held under the rule and power of sin. Because as we saw last week, our natures are corrupted. That means that when you were still an unbeliever, you could not effectively resist sin. You might have wanted to. You may have tried to, but you could not break free from sin's reigning power. Sin had you by the throat. Now, a bit of my own story. Before I came to Christ, I could not get rid of my pride and my arrogance, even though it sickened me. Now, maybe for you, your controlling sin, maybe it was anger or immorality or drunkenness or malice and spitefulness. But whatever it was, you were the slave of the sin that you obeyed and under the power of death. But when you believed in Jesus, all that changed. You were, Paul says, united with him. You became one with him. And because you are now one with Jesus, that actually means you died with him. The old you, with your old life, died. Now, why did Jesus die? He died for sin and to sin. And so when you believed, you were united to him in his death. And that means you died to sin also. And then... Amazingly, you were also united to Jesus in his resurrection. He rose to new life. You also rose to new life. And just as Jesus ever lives to God, so you also live to God. And you know what? That means that when you died with Christ and rose again, 
the reigning power of sin was broken in your life. You are now free from sin's power. Sin is not your master anymore. You have a new master. You belong to Jesus now. And he has made you a slave of righteousness, really and truly. Now, you obey God, you can obey God, from a heart that has been made new. You can say no to sin now. You can say no. In fact, that is the pattern of your life now. Whereas you were disobedient, now you are obedient. You have a new nature. In fact, you have Jesus' own nature. You are united to Christ So everything he has, including his holiness, including his holy nature, it becomes really and truly yours. And if this is true, then look down at verse 14 again. Sin will have no dominion over you. Now notice Paul doesn't say sin oughtn't to have dominion over you. Sin shouldn't have dominion over you. He says it just as a simple statement of fact. If you're in Christ, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin is cast down from its throne in your life and you are free of its horrible rule. So what else happens when you come to Christ? You become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I want you to imagine your life like it was a house. Now let's ask, what kind of house was your life to start with? Beautiful house? Well-furnished house? Clean house? No. No, not at all. If you really want to know, it was a meth house. That's what sin had made of it. But then, one wonderful day, You believed the gospel. And on that day, the Holy Spirit took ownership of this meth house that was your life. And on day one, he moved into it and he began to clean things up. The Holy Spirit began a lifelong renovation project on your life. Now, many of you can remember how In the first few weeks, in the first few months, he had to do some pretty heavy demo work, right? Knocking out walls, jackhammering the foundation. But then he started to build it back up. Week after week, month after month, the Spirit kept on working. Moving from one room to another. Clearing out the junk that lay hidden in the darkness. And all the contaminated materials. Exposing it to the fresh air and the light, letting in all these, the glorious air and the, and the light. And he's still at work, isn't he? He's still at work. 
And slowly, 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 it's beginning to look like a home. A beautiful home. And you know what? For some of you, he's been at it long enough that he's even gotten to start on the finished carpentry. But however long he's been at work in you, I want you to look back and think about what you used to be and rejoice because his work is lovely in your life. His work is lovely in your life. Now remember, his, his name has been on the deed from day one. He had ownership of all of it right from the get-go. The very first thing the Holy Spirit did was to hang out a sign outside the meth house that said, this is the holy temple of the living God. And that was absolutely true from day one. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You were holy from the very moment that God credited Jesus' righteousness to your account. And so Paul is able to say both that believers are are sanctified, meaning they are holy, and that they're called to be saints, called to be holy. They are sanctified, and they're called to be saints. They are holy, and they're called to be holy. Because the Holy Spirit takes that righteousness that's a gift of the Lord Jesus, and he actually starts working it into all the rooms of your life, even into the corners and the cupboards and the closets. He won't let any room alone, by the way. He won't allow you to to say, you know, this is mine, keep out of any part of it. He will insist on taking possession of it all. So what's the upshot? Sanctification is the process of becoming what you already are, holy. Now this process takes time. It takes a lifetime, but it is a work of glory. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. He is transforming you into a gloriously beautiful house. And the end result will be breathtaking. So what have we seen so far? If you're a believer, you have been made holy ever since the moment you came to Christ. But what happens now? What happens as you are continuing to walk with Christ? You are being made holy. You're a work in progress. And now I want us to turn and look at how that happens from another angle. We've seen that the Holy Spirit is at work to transform you, but what is your role? Because, you know, a house is not actively involved in its own renovation. It's entirely passive. Is it the same with our sanctification? No, it is not. 
No, we ourselves play an active role. So what does that look like? Well, we need to start by recognizing something. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, your sin does not cease being detestable just because God is faithful to forgive it. Your sin does not cease being detestable just because God is faithful to forgive it. When you first came to Christ, you had to come to grips with the fact that your sin was a horrible evil. It was heinous in God's sight, a stench in his nostrils. It was utterly opposed to him. It was committed against him. It was offensive to him in every way, and it was worthy of his just condemnation. And you rightly began to see that your sins, even the little sins, even the respectable sins, were altogether vile. Do you remember that? Now here's another question. Now you are in Christ. Your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, it's all forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do you view the sins that you commit now? Are they still loathsome and detestable to you? Or do you view them kind of casually now? Because, well, hey, after all, they're forgiven. Yikes! Let us beware of falling into the snare of treating our remaining sin as a light matter. Rather, as Romans 12.9 says, we must abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. In his wonderful book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray writes, All sin in the believer is the contradiction of God's holiness. Sin does not change its character as sin because the person in whom it dwells and by whom it is committed is a believer. The sin which resides in the believer and which he commits is of such a character that it deserves the wrath of God and the fatherly displeasure of God is evoked by this sin. Remaining indwelling sin is therefore the contradiction of all that he is as a regenerate person and a son of God. It's the contradiction of God himself after whose image he has been recreated. Brothers and sisters, your remaining sin remains your deadly enemy. Coddling it is like carrying around a pet rattlesnake in your pocket. Sin is a hindrance to your fellowship with your heavenly father. It is a violation of your conscience. It is a lie against your very identity as a holy one. And, and this is, this is a horrible thought, it may, your sin may be a stumbling block to others. Your children, your spouse, your friends, your loved ones, such that they might be disinclined to believe the gospel because of the sin that remains in your life. And finally, it is this sin that nailed the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. 
It is this sin for which he suffered the agonies of hell as he hung there under the curse of God. How can we love the thing that God hates? How can we make peace with the thing that killed our Savior? No, we must wage war against our remaining sin. Hating it and killing it. How? How should we do this? Listen to the words of Ephesians 4. You don't need to turn. I'll just start reading in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. How do we wage war against our remaining sin? We put off the old man. And we put on Christ. Continually. Every day. The old you, the old self, the old man, the the you that was in Adam... That's like a filthy old garment that you need to cast off. And the new you, your new self, the new man, the you that's in Christ, that's like a glorious new garment that's beautiful and clean. What do most of us naturally want to do when we've been out doing some really dirty job in bad weather and our clothes are mucky and soaked and itchy? Do we just want to sit down and settle in for a nice long stretch on the couch? No. We we long to strip those clothes off and hit the shower and then put on something clean and warm and dry that looks good on us. And in the same way, we must become increasingly uncomfortable with the sin that clings to us, the residue of our old nature. But here's the deal. It's not enough just to put off sin. We must put on righteousness through the renewing of our minds according to the gospel. Paul goes on to give examples. Those who were liars must become truth tellers. Those who were thieves must become laborers so that they can have something to share with others. Those whose tongues were corrupt must speak edifying words that build others up. We shed our sins and we put on the graces of Christ. Is this easy? It is not. Think for a moment of some troublesome sin or perhaps some well-loved sin. It dies hard, doesn't it? But it must die. Romans 8.13 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or to to change the illustration, I was helped by one preacher who explained mortification in this way. Mortification, that's just a word that means sin-killing. Think of a weed patch. Think of a weed patch that has been rototilled. And so now it's a garden. And it's not a weed patch anymore. Now that's the mortification that God does when he converts a soul. No longer, no longer is it a weed patch. Now it is a garden. But what happens if you fail to tend a garden? Let's say you go on vacation for three weeks in late July. What does the garden look like when you get back? Well, you find that the weeds have grown thick and tall, don't you? And it takes strenuous, decisive effort to set things back to rights, to level set again. That's a second kind of mortification. If you've been negligent, and there's some significant sin that has grown up in your life, which has laid down some pretty deep roots, what must you do? You must take action. Seek repentance. Seek accountability. Get to work putting that sin to death until those weeds are subdued. But then there's a third type of mortification, which that preacher described as you have to get out there every morning and pull up the weeds that are the size of a thumbnail because they're always going to be there. Every single day, we must be active and watchful, putting sin to death. It's warfare, friends. The devil is fighting against you. The world is fighting against you. Your own flesh is fighting against you. There's a reason why Paul tells the church to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's a reason when Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, over and over and over again, he promises eternal life to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. This is a fight, and the fight is hard. Now, there are four quick things that I want you to see about the nature of this work, this work of warring against our remaining sin. Number one, it's both God's work And it's our work. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What makes our work effective? Because God is the one who's at work within us. He is making us holy so we can strive for holiness. Number two, it is a necessary work. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one's going to see the Lord without holiness. And in that verse, we have a warning for believers and one for unbelievers. If you're here and you're not a Christian, are you listening? 
Kids, are you listening if you've not believed yet? Are you listening, you adults who sit here week in and week out, and you will not come to Christ? Are you listening, you who are here for the first time, but you don't know Jesus? You have no holiness. You have no goodness in yourself. You are a sinner in rebellion against the Lord God. And if you remain as you are, you will not see the Lord. Meaning you will not have eternal life in his kingdom. Instead, you will be excluded from it and cast out of his presence into what Jesus himself describes as the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. You must get holiness. But the problem is you have none of your own. What will you do? What must you do? You must look to God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God sent him into the world to die, to be judged in the place of sinners so that they might be made holy. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, here's the good news. God will forgive you of all of your sins if you will believe on Jesus. And he will do more than that. He will give you Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfect holiness as a gift. And that is what you must have if you would see the Lord. And it's what you can have. You can have it even right now. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But what if you're a Christian already? You're at least claiming to be a Christian, but you're not striving for holiness in your own life. What if you've come to some peaceful settlement with your sin? You're barely even trying to fight it. Instead, you make every excuse for it. You even cherish sin because it's very sweet to you. You live your life according to your sinful desires, presuming on God's forgiveness. You don't consider that the work of sanctification is necessary. You think that if God wants to change you, that's up to him. No effort needed by you. If this describes you, then hear this warning. Without holiness, no one, not even if they call themselves a Christian, no one will see the Lord. And yes, in in the context of Hebrews, it's clear he's talking about actual personal holiness. You are in danger, friend, of falling under the dreadful threat of Jude 4, which says that there are those who are designated for this condemnation ungodly men men who turn the grace of our Lord into an excuse for blatant immorality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It will not go well for your soul if you do not repent. Will you heed this warning? Wake up and shake off your presumption. Number three, 
And this should actually give God's people encouragement in light of the warning we just heard. Sanctification is a lifelong work. You will never be through with the work of, as John Owens put it, the work of walking daily on the bellies of your lusts. The war's long. The battle's pitched. And some days you'll have victory. And some days you will have defeats. Now over time, the victories are going to outpace the defeats. The growth curve is positive, even if it's not very steep, even if it's a little wonky. But it's going up. But it takes a a whole lifetime. Even the Apostle Paul says, oh, I'm not perfect yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So keep striving. Remember, child of God, you aren't who you used to be, are you? Think back. Now, you can't just look back at last week. That's not going to work. You might have had a lousy week. But many of you have been in Christ at least a year. How are things now compared to a year ago? Do you see any progress now? Better yet, if if you've been a believer for a while, look back at a five-year period. How are things now compared to five years ago or ten years ago? And if if you have a little difficulty being objective because you're just so close to yourself, get someone else who knows you well to help you remember. If you're having a little bit of tunnel vision, get them to come alongside you and say, what what do you see? What was I like? What am I like now? And they're going to have, they're they're hopefully going to have wonderful, wonderful encouragement for you. You are not who I remember you were. See, God is at work in you, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So number four, we wage the war with confidence because God is for us. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The power that is at work in you is the very same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. You don't fight a losing battle. You know, and this has real, real-time implications for when you're facing a particular encounter with temptation. You know, you might feel like you're bound to lose. You might feel that it's inevitable that this temptation is going to press you and press you and press you until you just must give in. But that is a lie. That's a lie. It's what the devil wants you to think, but it's not true. You can say no. You have the power to say no, and God has provided you with what you need to fight that temptation and win. Now, what helps does God provide for the battle? Ah, wonderful helps. There's wonderful helps, friends. Effective weapons. We're going to talk more about those weapons and how to use them next week, but here's a 50,000-foot view. The scriptures. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, says the psalmist. 
knowing the Word of God and meditating on it, mulling it over in your heart and pondering, you know, how's, how does this keep me from sin? How can this help me to fight? I might recommend you, you buy the excellent little book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. That book is excellent, and it actually just takes Scripture, and it exposes all the different lies that the devil uses to ensnare us and shows us how to fight back using Scripture. Prayer. Prayer's another another tool in our toolbox. Prayer to a high priest who knows what it means to be tempted, yet who is without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's ways out. God's going to provide a way out. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what your ability is. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Watchfulness. Watchfulness is another another help that we have from God. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have the privilege to be on the alert and watchful as we seek to protect ourselves against the power of the devil. And the church, the church, you have brothers and sisters to admonish you. You have elders to instruct and to watch over you. You have mature believers who can restore you if you're caught in transgression. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Oh, we have helps along the way, tools and weapons to fight against our remaining sin to put it to death. I want to close by considering the end of the journey. What is your great hope? What is your great hope? That you have been made holy, you are being made holy, and you will be made holy. The battle will eventually end, dear ones. One day, if the Lord Jesus doesn't come back first, your race will come to an end. You'll have fought the good fight. You'll have finished your course. You'll have kept the faith. And what then? You'll depart from this life and you'll be with Christ. You'll join the company of the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Just imagine experiencing just just your first day, your first full day without sin. For a whole day, there's been nothing that you've done or said or thought or wanted that is not in perfect conformity to the will of your heavenly Father. A whole day of loving your God and loving your neighbor without any lapse or failure, even the tiniest bit of bad motive. A whole day with purified affections, with nothing in your mind that's tainted by sin. Holiness. All a gift of grace, of course, but really yours. It's incredible to think about. 
But even this isn't good enough. Even that's not what the scriptures tell us ultimately to hope in. Rather, we are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to wait for one another, friends. No one gets the final installment of redemption before anybody else. We all get there together. But on that great day, when he comes, and we're gathered together in the resurrection, then Jesus will present the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy. And we will hear the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and they will see his face. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And on that day, you and I, beloved, will be holy as he is holy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your church here at Redeeming Grace. I want to thank you for the fact that you have saved many here. You've made them holy. You're making them holy. You will make them holy. Lord, I pray that we would strive always for holiness, that we'd strive to put to death our remaining sin, and that we would instead live in obedience, live lives of obedience for our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for the many who are here at this church who are not yet believers. And I pray, Father, that you would make them holy. Give them the righteousness of Jesus that they so desperately need. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.